Radio Mano Papachango. from a sailboat on the Muelle Deportivo in Las Palmas, Gran Canaria. This is the first episode that I'm sending out to you from a sailboat. <clears throat> and it's appropriate because uh, the guest this week is Dr. Andrew Baker and uh, almost Dr. Riva Winter, who uh, I, I hung out with in Miami a few months ago. Man, time flies. Time flies, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, uh, I was with them in Miami, and I recorded three podcasts. I This one, um, it might be a little confusing because it starts out essentially uh, with Riva and Andrew, and then I ended up focusing on Andrew and decided to do a separate podcast with Riva just because their research isn't exactly overlapping 100% and they have different perspectives on things. And I was staying with Reva and her boyfriend, so I had more time with her. And so I took advantage of the time with Andrew in the office to focus on his work. Uh, next week, I'll uh, put up the conversation I had with Reva and then subsequently with her boyfriend, Johan, who is also a fantastically interesting guy who's lived in the Galapagos for years. And so anyway, the three of them are all um, integrated with the sea and um, marine life. And they're very smart, very interesting folks. So this will be a bit of a series, the Miami series coming at you. As I say, I'm sitting in the, uh, what's it called? What's it, what's the word? The bridge? It's not the bridge. That bridge is where you control things. It's a, it's a yacht, a small yacht. Uh, and I'm in the, the brig. No, the brig is the prison. <laughs> Fuck, I don't know what it, the, you know, the table, the dining room table, the only table on this boat. That's where I am. I know there's a nautical term for it, but I can't remember what the fuck it is. Anyway, um, I moved down from the mountain. For those of you who are following my peregrinations, I was in um, an isolated cabin up on the volcano at the center of this island with a beautiful view, beautiful place, completely isolated. Um, but after a month there, I had enough of that. Part of the problem actually was that it's it's perched on the side of this precipitous hillside and so there really wasn't anywhere to walk you could like walk you know hike up or hike down but there was no sort of nice level you know moderate hike to do from there so i had a rental car and i had to drive the car everywhere i went so it was kind of like i don't know it was like being in la or something so after a month of that, I decided I want to be able to walk, go for a run in the morning, take a swim in the ocean. So I came down to Las Palmas and I rented a place there from a guy, a uh, friend of a friend. And uh, it was great, great location, except for the fact that the guy didn't mention that the people upstairs were doing construction work, which is not conducive to the life of someone who's trying to finish a book, of course. So I abandoned that. And uh, I found this uh, this guy who owns the sailboat, Peter, 
And uh, Peter agreed to rent me a sailboat for a month. So I'm here on Peter's sailboat. And by the way, you're going to meet Peter because he's agreed to be on the podcast. He's a fascinating guy. He's crossed the Atlantic, I think he said 19 times on sailboats. He's a professional skipper. So he sort of, um, you know, some rich people buy a boat and they want to get it to Brazil, but they can't sail it across the ocean themselves. So they'll hire him to do it. And uh, he's been all over. He backpacked all over Africa several times. And uh, so he's going to tell us some interesting stories. I I don't want to use his last name because he told me some stories the other night that I'd love for him to tell you. But I wouldn't want him to tell you those stories if he includes his last name (laughs) because there was uh, some interesting illegality involved in some of those stories. I came across a quote recently that I thought I'd share share with you. It's from Alan Watts. Uh, If you haven't read any Alan Watts, he's really worth your time. He was one of the first people to bring uh, Eastern teachings to the Western world. I believe he studied Sanskrit and did um, translations of some of the ancient texts into English, some of the first translations. He was a British guy. Um, uh, I think he was a... a Buddhist priest, but also uh, a Christian cleric of some sort. I don't remember if it was Unitarian or, or what, um, you know, as one of the cool Christian sects. Anyway, he was a friend of uh, Stanley Krippner's. When Stanley was young, he was lucky enough to spend some time with Alan Watts, who, who actually, it just occurs to me, lived on a sailboat in Sausalito, uh, at least for his last decade or so. Stanley told me stories about going and partying on Alan Watts's boat back in the day. Um, but if you do get a chance, check out some of his books. His autobiography is fantastic. It's called In My Own Way, which is one of those great titles that works in two different directions. Um, you know, he's just a really wise, interesting man and sort of a precursor to Terrence McKenna in the sense that he was as famous for his uh, spontaneous riffing, uh, as he was for his writing. Uh, brilliant guy. Anyway, so this is Alan Watts and, and this relates to a story I've told, I think a couple of times now on the podcast about, um, friends of mine who have this incredibly comfortable bed and in the morning they asked me what I thought of it. And I realized I hadn't really thought anything at all. And that got me thinking about how comfort is something that we take as a positive, but in fact, often it's simply the absence of a negative. And uh, how that it's important to think that the op, the absence of a negative is not a positive. I, I've, I've got thinking about all this with um, Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. A very interesting thesis there, which is essentially that some systems or organisms or whatever are fragile. And so as an example, he says, take a, a wine glass and put it in a box and shake the box. The wine glass breaks. So it's fragile, right? So what's the opposite of that? Now, most people would say, well, put a rock in the box, shake the box. Nothing happens to the rock. It's fine. It's, that's the opposite of fragile. But what he points out is, no, that's not the opposite of fragile. That's stable, but the actual opposite of fragile would be something that where you shake the box, it gets stronger as opposed to shattering. Not that it just 
doesn't change, right? That's the opposite. Uh, sorry, that's the absence of fragility, but it's not the opposite of fragility. Just as when I lay down in that bed, I fell asleep immediately. That was the absence of discomfort, but it wasn't the opposite of discomfort. The opposite of discomfort would be some sort of pleasure, right? Um, so I think this is a really important way of thinking, an important distinction to make. The absence of hunger is not satisfaction. It's just non-hunger. So what really feels good is when you get very hungry and then you eat really good food. That actually is a positive. Whereas snacking all day, there's not really a positive there. There's just a constant absence of a negative. This sounds sort of philosophical, but it's not. It's extremely practical when you think about think about your friends. How many of your friends are actually significantly positive presence in your life as opposed to people who just make loneliness go away? And I've had lots of friends like that over the years, friends of convenience, friends that really we were just friends because we lived in the same town and we liked to watch American football or because we both like playing poker or because, you know, we worked in the same place or whatever. But remove that, that event or that shared interest or whatever, and nah, we didn't really have that much in common. And then, you know, I moved or he moved or she moved or whatever, and we lost touch and that was the end of it. Well, were those people really friends? Should I really have been taking up my time with them? Should I really have been sharing my life with them? Because the fact is they weren't a positive presence. If they were a positive presence, I'd stay in touch with them. Even if they live on the other side of the world, I'd still want to stay in touch with them. In fact, what they were was just the sort of friendship equivalent of snacking on junk food. They were just a presence that removed the discomfort of loneliness, but they weren't the positive presence of someone who challenged me, who taught me, who made me laugh, who enriched my life in an active, important way. Anyway, so let's let's read Alan Watts on this issue. He says, because consciousness, because consciousness must involve both pleasure and pain, to strive for pleasure to the exclusion of pain is, in effect, to strive for the loss of consciousness. You get that? Consciousness must involve both pleasure and pain. So to strive for pleasure to the exclusion of pain is, in effect, to strive for the loss of consciousness. The greater part of human activity is designed to make permanent those experiences and joys which are only lovable because they are changing. Music is a delight because of its rhythm and flow. Yet the moment you arrest the flow and prolong a note or chord beyond its time, the rhythm is destroyed. Because life is likewise a flowing process, change and death are its necessary parts. I repeat that because life is likewise a flowing process. Change and death are its necessary parts to work for their exclusion is to work against life. 
For change is not merely a force of destruction. Every form is really a pattern of movement, and every living thing is like the river, which, if it did not flow out, would never have been able to flow in. Life and death are not two opposed forces. They are simply two ways of looking at the same force. For the movement of change is as much the builder as the destroyer. That's some good shit right there. Alan Watts, check him out. Uh, While we're doing poetry of a sort, deep thinking... Here's a poem called Ambition by Jack Gilbert. This was um, sent to me by Matt Owen, who's in charge of the Tangentially Reading Project that's going on. Uh, I guess I should take this opportunity to call out anybody who wants to volunteer some time to work on that project. Please get in touch with Matt Owen. Um, I guess I should give you his email address. Matt Owen, there it is. Matt at misfit, M I S F I T hyphen ink dot com. That's Matt at misfit hyphen ink dot com. Matt Owen, very cool guy who I believe is lolling around on a beach in the Philippines right now. Lucky bastard. Anyway, this uh, song is, uh, this um, poem is called Ambition by Jack Gilbert. Uh, Matt got turned on to Jack Gilbert, as did I, by. Uh, Tom Spanbauer, a few episodes back, the the writer and writing teacher in Portland that uh, I had a chance to sit down with. He read a piece by Jack Gilbert. So here's another piece. It's called Ambition. Having reached the beginning, starting toward a new ignorance, places to become, secrets to live in, sins to achieve, maybe South America, perhaps a new woman, another language to not understand. Like setting out on a raft over an ocean of life already well lived. A two-story failed hotel in the tropics. Hot silence of noon with the sun straying through the shutters. Sitting with his poems at a small table. Everybody asleep. Thinking with pleasure. Trailing his hand in the river he will turn into. So let's talk about this a little bit. Ambition. Hmm. Having reached the beginning, starting toward a new ignorance. I read a quote the other day. I don't remember who it was from. Some, you know, Diderot or Voltaire or some fancy philosopher about whom I know very little. But they said uh, the there's something like the greatest achievement of knowledge is ignorance, something along those lines. You know, basically, the more you, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Having reached the beginning, starting toward a new ignorance, right? Places to become, secrets to live in, sins to achieve. I love that, sins to achieve, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast before, but years ago, uh, I was hanging out with my best buddy, Mike, in Paris. This was this was just when I had come back from my first trip to Asia, like a year and a half, two years in Asia, and I flew to Paris, and he and I were hanging out, hadn't seen each other for a long time, and uh, 
And Mike and I are like, uh, you know, Spock and Kirk, for those of you who watched the original Star Trek. Those were, you know, how we saw each other and ourselves. He is very, very smart, very analytical, very careful thinker, um, you know, a perfectionist in so many different ways and actually achieves perfection. He's not just he's not neurotic about it. He's an incredibly talented guy. And I'm, you know shoot from the hip, spontaneous, you know, occasional flash of brilliance surrounded by a lot of bullshit and sloppiness, even more so when I was in high school. And uh, so, you know, I was in, you know, Mike was in at Cornell studying engineering, working really hard, doing all his problem sets and I was wandering around, you know, taking drugs and traveling and doing all sorts of uh, adventure, hopping trains and hitchhiking and all that kind of stuff. And then after college, he went on immediately into graduate school and then got a great job and got transferred to Paris where he'd always wanted to be. And meanwhile, I had gone off to Alaska and then got that job in New York and then uh, went off to Asia and traveled around and blew all my money. So I arrive in Paris. I'm broke, but I've had all these amazing experiences. And Mike's got this great job and an apartment. And so we're hanging out. And and we were talking about how, you know, in some ways he and I were, were both looking for the same things, but f- through completely different paths. And Mike said, you know, I've been thinking about you. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that you're the anti-monk. He said, what are you talking about? He said, you're like a monk. You're a spiritual seeker, like a monk is. But whereas a monk will go into solitude and, you know, live on a very simple diet and and avoid any sort of contamination or contact with women or anything like that, you take the opposite approach. You're on a spiritual path, but you're trying to get there by way of excess, by trying all these different drugs and meeting as many women as you can and traveling all over the place and filling your life with all these experiences, you're actually seeking some sort of spiritual insight by way of a decadent bohemian path. And I think he was right about that. Anyway, sins to achieve. That's what that line made me think of. I was out there trying to achieve my sins. Maybe South America, perhaps a new woman, another language to not understand. Like setting out on a raft over an ocean of life already well lived. I love that line. Love that line. It makes me think of how sometimes you'll hear a news story and they'll say, you know, a 78-year-old man lost his life today in an auto accident. Well, I got news for you. He didn't lose his life. He's got 78 years of it already in the bank. What did he lose? Four, five, six, ten, maybe years, shitty years at that, probably. He didn't lose his fucking life. Are you kidding me? That's like, you know, almost finishing your dinner and they take the plate away when you've got two bites left. You didn't lose your dinner. You just lost a couple of bites there that you probably didn't really need anyway. The enjoyment comes in the first half of the meal. Not necessarily of the life, but of the meal. So I like the idea of setting out on a raft over an ocean of life already well lived. Because if you fucking sink, who gives a shit? You've already got an ocean of life well lived. That's the essential wisdom at the heart of getting out there while you're young and having experiences and 
taking risks and doing all that shit when you're young, because then no matter what happens in the second part of your life, in the latter years of your life, even if you're on a shitty little raft and it's taken on water, you're still on an ocean of life already well lived and nobody can take that away from you. So I'm 54 years old. I don't have any fucking money in the bank. I don't have a retirement account. I don't have an IRA. I don't have social security. I don't have any of that shit. But I'll tell you what I do have, motherfucker. I've got an ocean of life already well lived. A two-story failed hotel in the tropics, hot silence of noon with the sun straying through the shutters, sitting with his poems at a small table, everybody asleep. Man, I've been there. So many failed hotels in the tropics and the hot silence of noon with the sun straying through the shutters. Fuck, yeah, I know exactly that place. That's where Matt is right now in the Philippines. I'll bet there are lots of little places just like that. Thinking with pleasure, trailing his hand in the river, he will turn into. So, he will turn into is a really nice phrase there because remember he's on a raft so maybe turning into the river will be as he comes home right after crossing this ocean of life already well lived he'll turn into the river and uh and come home come to rest similarly he will turn into a river he'll die and become the flow as we all will, as we all do. All right, that was Ambition by Jack Gilbert. Check him out. All right, I know there's all sorts of shit I'm supposed to be reminding you of in terms of buying shit on Amazon and using my portal and all that, but the main thing I want to remind you of this week is that Fund What You Love is shutting down. Uh, Danny, who's a listener of the podcast, set it up about a year ago and I agreed to, you know, try to help him get it off the ground and, um, attract other, other users. He, he's specifically shooting for nonprofits, but for whatever reason it hasn't worked and it's costing him money to keep it running. So he's shutting it down. I'm switching over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Um, and it's kind of a financial hit I'm taking because a bunch of a bunch of you signed up for Fund What You Love back when uh, we launched it, and that's been great because it's been a buck, five bucks, whatever per month, and so that's been you know close, probably a half, a third, whatever of the the funding for the podcast. That's all going away. So. Um, if you were on paid, if you were on fund what you love, it would be great if you took a minute and uh, went over to uh, Patreon and signed up for this podcast there. Um, if you weren't on fund what you love and you've been thinking about how you enjoy having a podcast that is bullshit free, well, commercial bullshit. You still have to listen to my bullshit, but I guess that's part of the fun, right? Uh, but commercial bullshit free. Uh, I really appreciate any funding that you can uh, set up at patreon.com. The cool thing about it is that it's a budget. You know, I can see exactly what it is. So if it's, a, you know, like right now there's about 100 bucks a month coming in from it. 
which is wonderful. And thank you to those of you who have already signed up there. Um, but yeah, if we could get that up to a thousand, a couple thousand a month, then I know, okay, we've got this certain amount of income. I can, you know, realistically fly over here and do this and get the van and do that. And speaking of which, uh, I'm flying up to Amsterdam on the 12th, no, on the 11th, 9-11. For some reason, every year I end up flying on 9-11. <laughs> I think it's I think it's because I'm cheap. I think it's because generally I'm pretty flexible as to when I make a trip. And uh, the tickets are always cheaper on 9-11. And I don't realize till later why that is. Anyway, I'll be flying 9-11 to Amsterdam. And on the 12th, I'm spending the day with Wim Hof. If you don't know who Wim Hof is, Google that motherfucker right now. He was on Rogan's podcast. He's been on Tim Ferriss's podcast. He's been on Vice. He was profiled on Vice. He's known as the Iceman. This dude climbed Mount Everest in shorts. He's run marathons above the Arctic Circle with no shoes and no shirt. He's taken uh, withstanding extreme cold temperatures uh, to levels no human being has has achieved in recorded history, and he sees it as a, a a mental discipline and a spiritual discipline. Very interesting man, and he's not a not some sort of circus circus sideshow. That's a hard one. Um, he teaches other people to do this, and it's got a very deep and an important spiritual component for him so i'm you know he agreed to do the podcast on skype and i was like fuck i don't want to do it on skype i want to meet this guy i want to spend time with him i want to be able to tell the children that i'll never have that i spent a day with wim hof because i think he's an extraordinary human being and so those are your patreon dollars hard at work flying my white ass up there to amsterdam where i hope to be recording a podcast with wim hof sitting in ice water that's my pledge to you. Those of you who support this podcast, I will dip my lily white Irish ass into ice water and record at least the first minute of the podcast with Wim Hof from the ice bath. Yes. Um, and as you know, I'm my Uncle Dan, who those of you who listen to the podcast met recently is searching for a sprinter van right now, which will be the podcast mobile, the mobile podcast studio. And I'll be driving that around the US of A. Thank you to those of you who've already written offering to put me up and let me use your shower and buy me a beer and so on and so forth. Um, when and if this thing gets on the road, uh, definitely I'll be looking you up and, you know, we'll, we'll figure out how to, how to hang. Um, and I guess, okay, here I have to admit something. I've been thinking about this. And this is hard to admit. But fuck it, it's true. I've been back in Spain a few months now, three, four months. And, um, you know, I started talking about this podcast thing, the van, and talking to my uncle. And I've been wanting to live in a van a long time. And I like the mobility of it. I like the sort of you know, hunter gatherer vibe, but you've got your creature comforts, you got your hammock, you got your uh, memory foam mattress, you got your two burner gas stove, you know, you got your nice sound system, your LED lights. 
solar panels. I, I like this integration of, um, you know, contemporary cutting edge technology with sort of primeval life ways. But there's more to it than that. And this is this is what I have to admit. After being back in Spain for a while, I have come to the realization that as much as I love Spanish culture and as much as I love my Spanish friends, uh, and as much as I am in deep opposition to many aspects of American culture, the simple fact is that most of the most interesting people I know live in America. Now, you might say, well, that's because you're American, so you understand each other better. And I'm sure that's true to a certain extent. But I think it, I think it's deeper than that. Because, you know, if I made a list of the 50 most interesting people I've met in my life, and keep in mind, most of my adult life, I've been outside of the U.S., right? Um, probably 40 of them are Americans. And the rest are a hodgepodge of other nationalities, but I think there is something about American society, and it's probably the very things that I dislike about it, that generates really interesting people, that generates people who are, who are fucking full bore going for it, who are really thinking about things, who are really trying new things, who are taking risks, who are trying new relationship configurations and thinking about new ways to live. It's a very fertile country. And, you know, God damn, I hate to say this, but, you know, take it to the next level. The most interesting people I know in the world, most of them are in fucking Los Angeles, which is sort of the epicenter of everything I despise about America. There it is in Los Angeles. And that's where... So many of these really interesting people are, and not just interesting because they're successful or they're making money or they're famous or whatever. It's that there's a depth in their eyes. There's a depth in their questions. There's a, an intensity and a passion in the way they're living their lives that I just find so fucking compelling and which is very hard to find in Spain, at least for me. Uh, and I've been here a long time. And as I said, I love Spain. I love Spanish people. I love so much about this place. But I think because the culture is is essentially healthy, it turns out people who are healthy, who are balanced, who are rational and relaxed, tranquilos, they're, they're not seeking because they've already got what they want. Life is comfortable. Life is good. What are you going to go seeking for? Why do you want to change things? Comfortable, healthy cultures don't produce revolutionaries. They don't produce firebrands. And those are the people I find most interesting. So, yeah, I'm in a bit of a conundrum. I have to admit it. I miss America. I don't miss the fucking cops. I don't miss the bullshit on television. I don't miss fucking Walmart and Costco and all the goddamn corporate control over daily life. I don't miss the shitty highways and the bridges that are falling down and the airports that haven't had the goddamn carpet cleaned in 30 years. I don't miss that. But 
yeah, when I think of the friends I made in Portland in a year and what, what quality people they are. And then I look at like, how many friends have I made in Spain in 20 years? Most of them are foreigners. Um, cause I like that edge. So yeah, I don't know if the Donald will have me, I'm probably going to be spending a lot of time in the U S in the near future. All right. I've reached my limit. 30 minutes is about as, as long as I want to rant. Uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Andrew Baker, who's doing fascinating work uh, with coral and uh, marine biology in general. And uh, as I say, next week, I'll uh, follow up with Reva Winter, who you hear a little bit at the beginning of this, and then she sh- she sort of sits out the rest of the conversation. Um, but then she and I have our own exclusive conversation, which I will share with you next week. I hope you're doing well. I'll uh, catch you next week from La Estrella Blanca, the sailboat in Gran Canaria. This is On the Rolling Sea by the great Oludara, O-L-U-D-A-R-A, On the Rolling Sea. Rolling Sea, when she rides, when she rides, and speaks to me, on the Rolling Sea, when she rides. Rolling sea when the mighty one speaks to me. On the rolling sea when she rides, when she rides. On the rolling sea when the mighty one speaks to me. On the rolling sea when she rides, when she rides.
Bring on the mighty one Right here with me Right on here Rolling again Like two ships in the bay They said it was that way, y'all On the road to sea On the rolling sea Oh, when she rides She rides She rides Ain't, ain't Roll now Roll with me, see Ain't, ain't Yep I am here in Miami, Florida, sultry Miami, Florida, with uh, doc, doctor, right? I, mm-hmm. We're all doctors here, I assume, <laughs> although none of us could do anything of any medical use for anybody. Um, Dr. Andrew Baker and Dr. Reva Winter. Not yet. Oh, you're not a doctor yet? No. Oh, geez. Well, I just lost <laughs> so much later respect. This year. <laughs> yeah, sometime in November. In November. So you're a pre-doc. You're a doctor to be, hmm. and in marine biology, is that will that be your degree? Yeah, it'll be in marine biology and ecology. And ecology, so you'll be a double doc. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew, uh, you're a marine biologist, uh, and is that your degree as well? Marine it biology? is actually. Funny enough, I did my PhD at this very same school, so Reva and I will actually have a PhD oh. from the same department, except 17 years apart. Oh well, nice. Some continuity. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So, how did uh, Andrew? How did you get into this? Have you always wanted to be a marine biologist? Were you? Uh, are you a Jacques Cousteau? No, guy? not really. I've, I've always been. I guess I've always known I might be a biologist. Whether a marine biologist, I don't know. I'm. I'm you know, I grew up in Britain. We're an island nation, and we mm. tend to pride ourselves on our kind of connections to the sea and our maritime history and all that stuff. And I was certainly one of those kids who would go to the beach, go to the seaside and look under the rocks and the tide pools and try to collect whatever I could get my hands on. Mm. But equally, in my back garden in Bath, England, which is you know, fairly landlocked uh, by British standards, you know, it's the same thing. I'd go down to the river or, or look in the garden and always been trying to collect stuff. So I never fell out of love with animals, creatures, and mm. things around me. It's, it's mainly animals. I, I never kind of got into the plant business. Really? I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't name trees to, to save my life, or, or actually birds for that matter. A lot of people are good with birds and trees, and right. I can't do it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because the, the animal that you ended up being most uh, invested in, a lot of people think is a plant. That's a good point, yeah. Um, yeah, they're obviously very simple animals, corals, and uh, you know, they're, they're interesting for lots of different reasons. Obviously, they are animals, but they have, as you said, characteristics of plants to them and also characteristics of rocks. That's the other thing mm. people often confuse corals with, that they're some sort of rock at the bottom of the ocean. In fact, mm. as a kid, we used to play this game called Animal, Vegetable, or Mineral, which was kind of a guessing game, kind of a 20 questions type thing. And corals are one of those few 
organisms on the planet that are in fact all three of those things at the same time. They're animals and vegetables because they have uh, a symbiotic partnership with these tiny algae that live inside their, their tissues and are responsible for their biological success mm. and their minerals because they form calcium carbonate limestone skeletons that are the building blocks of the reef ecosystem. Right. Wow. So, okay, now that makes them vegetable because they have the symbiotic relationship with the, the algae. But don't we also have symbiotic relationship? With yes, we do. Good point. So what makes them sort of vegetable, I suppose, is that they're photosynthetic and they can use sunlight oh, energy to make food. It. Right. And it's true that we are, humans are, uh, symbioses with a whole variety of organisms. In fact, you know, it's often you'll hear that there are 10 times more bacterial cells in our body than there are human cells. Right. But to my knowledge, I don't think any or many of those uh, cells are photosynthetic. So right. these are bacterial that bacteria that that exist, you know, in a whole variety of life forms. But I don't think there's many photosynthetic. Well, are are we? I, I remember reading somewhere that we were the only primate or possibly mammal that um, manufactured vitamin D from sunlight in our skin. Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. And this is totally speaking ignorantly, if the, part of the reason we are able to manufacture vitamin D is through some association with bacteria. Right, uh, right. That's the kind of thing that they do. Yeah. These bacteria, they give us all kinds of different um, sort of superpowers. Right. Kind of like, you know, Spider-Man being bitten by the spider, all of a sudden we've yeah. got this new ability. I interviewed a guy recently who was an expert in fecal transplant. Oh. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you can actually get superpowers from someone else. That's with, right. With rats, they've shown that they take the fecal material from depressed, obese rats and, you know, squirt it up the ass of a skinny, happy rat, and and they, they become depressed and obese very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Maybe it's just the experience. <laughs> uh, but let's not get into that. Uh -huh. um, no, I, I may be confusing the vitamin D thing. It may be that humans are the only primate that doesn't manufacture its own vitamin C. It's, it's vitamin C. Uh, and that's that why we get scurvy, right? right? Right. And so we need to have it in the diet. Although it's, it certainly seems possible that there are um, members of our skin microbiome that affect our uh, efficiency at producing vitamin D. Right. Because it involves nitric oxide and and cholesterol, and the sun hits hits your skin, and right. there are certain types of beneficial skin microbes that produce nitric oxide when they eat your sweat. And it also has something to do with the melanin content, because I know white people are less likely to have low vitamin D levels at higher altitudes than dark-skinned people. So people who are, emigrate from Africa or something to Sweden are at very high risk of having uh, dangerously low vitamin D. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff there. I mean, before I turned on the mics, we were talking about superorganisms, so that sort of triggered mm -hmm. for me when you're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, the different, how we contain all these different worlds and, and communities of, of organisms, many of which aren't anything like us. Well, all of which aren't anything like us, I guess. Yeah. Do you guys know anything about the aquatic ape theory? I, this is ridiculous for people of your expertise. But I, this is Reva's area. <laughs> you know about this? Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, first of all, let, let me just summarize. The aquatic ape theory uh, posits that early 
ancestors, I don't know, millions of years ago, I guess, basically chimpanzees, or the, the common ancestor with chimpanzees, lived in tidal areas and found that the, the best food source was the water and it was the safest from land-based predators. And in the tidal area, it was also safe from aquatic predators like sharks that couldn't get into the shallow water. And because the water was basically pretty close to body temperature, they spent a lot of time there. And long story short, one branch of humans evolved into dolphins, I guess, is, is the idea, right? I don't think that, that the idea is that dolphins specifically arose from the uh, a most recent common ancestor of primates necessarily, mm. but there are some really compelling, if, if I am perfectly honest, um, lines of evidence that point to our distant ancestors as having spent a lot of time in and around water. Right. And it's it's certainly not my area of expertise, but um, yeah. and maybe I just really want to believe that <laughs> because I've always been so connected to the ocean. But yeah. I mean, things from the, the pattern of our body hair right. to the fact that we have subcutaneous fat right. to our tear ducts to the fact that our fingertips get wrinkled in the water mm -hmm. and, and it channels the wrinkles channel water away from your fingertips and they become more sensitive. It's it's all so interesting. And um, infants know not to breathe underwater. Uh, only right. human infants. Chimpanzee infants will take a deep breath and drown yeah. immediately. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I, I, I think in scientific terms it's generally poo-pooed as a ridiculous you know beyond uh, beneath consideration kind of thing but you're right it, and i think the, the interpretation i just presented is probably the reason it's disregarded oh well that was nice <laughs> and now we'll have a word from our sponsors <laughs> Uh, yeah, Elaine Morgan, I think, yes. wrote the... Uh, well, she wrote the popular adaptation. I'm forgetting the man's name. Yeah, it was first, a teacher um, of hers. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get back to Coral. So, you guys uh, seem happy and upbeat, and yet, aren't you sort of monitoring the, the demise of the planetary ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, that's a good... Uh, a good way to frame it. I, I, everything is, I suppose, relative. Um, there are coral reef biologists who um, really are, you know, throwing up their hands that the state of the world's reef ecosystems, especially over the last uh, two years, and particularly over the last right. like, three or four months, uh, there's a yeah, huge bleaching event a lot. going on through the Pacific, and yeah. the Great Barrier Reef in particular has been uh, horrendously affected by its worst ever bleaching episode, which is a phenomenon that affects corals when they get too hot. And so climate change has really devastated reef ecosystems around the world as a result of this bleaching phenomenon that causes corals to give up their algal symbionts. Oh, and without right. those algal symbionts, they can't collect sunlight energy, they can't make enough food, and uh, they become susceptible to all kinds of diseases that can overtake them. Mm -hmm. and often are the things that actually kill them when they're in the bleached state. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that you can point to that the world's reefs are in dire trouble, and, and that's, that's actually all true. The reason, I suppose, why we, I su you could think of as being a bit more upbeat is the research that we do in the lab has always tended to focus more on mechanisms of adaptation and acclimatization, and the Within our field, the assumption has always been, at least over the last decade or so, that corals cannot adapt quickly enough to deal with the rates of climate change that we're seeing. 
And that, of course, is also true. It's just that the kinds of mechanisms that we've been studying are mechanisms that can happen fairly quickly and that might produce sort of a, um, some room for hope, kind of a, a, a little a glimmer of hope for reefs that mm. they might be able to use this particular mechanism as a lifeline to survive climate change. And you're you're introducing uh, novel symbionts that that are hardier or more adapted to the the rising temperatures. Yeah, I mean it, the question is what's novel. Uh, the symbionts that we are manipulating or introducing to colonies are not novel in the sense of being evolutionarily novel. Then right. we're not sort of tampering with the the symbioses that are out there in nature. What we're really doing is just changing the conditions to kind of promote or foster the growth of algae that are usually in these reefs, but they tend to be very rare. And we're trying to figure out what conditions we can uh, do, what we can do to these corals to increase the abundance of these often heat tolerant algae mm. and give them sort of the raw materials that they might need to be able to survive a bleaching event. So it sounds to me from your description that that given enough time, if conditions uh, were stable enough at these higher temperatures, those symbionts would flourish eventually. It might take hundreds of years, but eventually because they would survive, they would uh, find an ecosystem, a niche that they could spread into. Sounds like what you're doing is just speeding up a natural process. Yeah, that's certainly one way of thinking about it. it there is evidence in the past that when corals have gone through these uh, sort of climatic shifts that they've undergone uh, sort of uh, rapid diversification of certain types of symbionts that have mm. become common and then diversified within all these different coral hosts. And it's possible that over evolutionary time, these kinds of symbionts that we're looking at that are thermally tolerant might be the seed stock for another diversification. But that would take, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of right. years, and that's clearly not what we have to play with. Um, so yeah, we are sort of accelerating a natural process, but, you know, obviously we also have to consider you know, what the costs of those uh, types of changes might be. There's some evidence that corals that have these heat-tolerant symbionts in them might grow more slowly as a result of being heat-tolerant. There's sort of a trade-off between heat tolerance and growth. So that's one of the things that we're investigating. Um, but to get back to your original point, the fact that corals are in such a severe state of decline, I think, requires that we start to investigate some of these really extraordinary measures to mm -hmm. try and help them survive, uh, even though they may come with certain costs. So that's kind of what we're interested in the lab, is investigating the costs and the benefits of these kinds of uh, uh, intervention strategies. And you've got uh temperature changes, but you also have acidification. That's right. That's the other side of the climate change uh, threat, which is really a two-edged sword for, for corals and, and uh, other organisms too. Not only is rising CO2 in the atmosphere causing a greenhouse effect, which causes the earth and its oceans to warm up, which is what causes the heat stress, which causes the corals to bleach. But some of that CO2, a lot of it, uh, equilibrates with the ocean, dissolves in the ocean, and as it dissolves in the ocean, it makes the ocean more acidic. Mm. And a more acidic ocean is more difficult for corals to build and calcify their their limestone skeletons in. And so corals, as well as lots of other skeleton and shell-forming organisms like oysters and a lot of commercially valuable uh, shellfish are being affected by ocean acidification as well, which is, again, it's, it's the other side of the climate change debate uh, or the climate change threat. Uh, corals are becoming not only uh, coral, uh, the, the world's oceans are becoming sort of hot and sour at the right. same time. And do the the organisms that you're working with are they also resistant to the higher acid levels? So that's something else that we're discovering. Obviously, this this 
uh, CO2 increases causing temperature increases and uh, ocean acidification at the same time. And so has that happened historically? It has happened. Go, go in tandem? Yeah, you could, you, so people have you know, obviously tracked the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere for a good uh, 60 odd years now uh, with an observatory on top of Mauna Loa in, in Hawaii. So we've got a good record of what the CO2 in the atmosphere has been doing. And there's good data now showing that the, the, the parallel process has been occurring in the ocean for a long time too, but it's only, uh, by a long time I mean decades, right. um, but it's only fairly recently that we've been able to conclusively show that there are effects of this acidification process on coral reef calcification and growth. Uh. Um, and so, yeah, so one of the things that we're interested in looking at is not only is how do different algal symbionts help corals resist heat stress, but also how do they deal with uh, ocean acidification or OA stress, right. as we sometimes call it. And is the the Fukushima event that, uh, as far as I know, is ongoing, because they're still dumping tons of radioactive water into the ocean, is that affecting the the overall ocean ecology? I don't know. Yeah. That's, a good, that's, a, that's a good question. I, you know, I, th I know that the, you know, the connectivity of the oceans has been uh, sort of invoked there to sort of monitor the spread of contaminated water. And, mm. you know, even months later, as you probably know, there was all kinds of garbage still washing ashore on, yeah, the, on the western coast of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, I don't, know, I don't know much about the radioactive effects on marine life. So what happens if, you know, I can imagine none of my listeners, but some, someone might say, well, who gives a damn? What, you know, okay, so the coral goes, something else will, you know, take its place. How would the world be different with no coral? So there's lots of different ways to answer that question, and, and, and which w the answer that resonates depends on the audience, depends on what, what right. appeals to people. Right. You know, from my own perspective, because I'm fascinated by biology, the most powerful argument that works for me is the fact that coral reefs are the, the world's marine equivalent of a rainforest. Mm. They are the world's most biodiverse ecosystem, certainly in the marine realm and arguably on the whole face of the planet, because there are more um, what we call phylogenetically diverse types of organisms living on coral reefs than anywhere else. Right. So although you may find more named species of organisms in a rainforest, say in Brazil, you will at, uh, most of the organisms in those terrestrial rainforests tend to be very closely related to one another. They, in particular, they all tend to be insects, and in particular, most of them are about are, are beetles. Right. In fact, it was once famously quipped by a 19th century biologist that if, if God exists, he must be inordinately fond of beetles. Right. <laughs> um, and that comes from our studies of rainforest ecology. Yeah. But if you look at the, re at the biodiversity in tropical reefs, not only do you find you know the marine equivalent of the beetle lineage, but you find all these other amazing uh, you know uh, experiments in life. You know of the yeah. thirty-three or so animal phyla that live on this planet, uh, fully twenty-nine or thirty of those phyla are found on coral reefs. Really, whereas only eleven phyla are found in all terrestrial ecosystems combined. No, so kidding. basically, there's all this marine biodiversity that just simply doesn't have its representatives on land and, wow. and most of those phylogenetic lineages are found in coral reefs. So right. coral reefs are tremendously biodiverse. We've lost, it depends on who you who you believe and where you are on the planet, but it, it's a safe bet to assume that we've lost somewhere between sort of 50, 60, 70 percent of 
the coral cover on reefs around the world. Uh, even in some of the world's most pristine areas, we've still seen huge losses of coral cover. And the corals are the sort of the base of the ecosystem. And just like the trees in the rainforest, they're the things that actually build the physical structure that all these other species depend on. Right. Um, so just as you can't have a rainforest if you chop down 50 or 60 or 70 percent of the trees, you can't really have a coral reef if you start thinning out the coral cover that much too. So corals, although they're just one group of this amazing biodiversity, they're a really critically important group because they're the, what we call the ecosystem engineers. They're the, the guys that are actually at the coal face building, right. the, the, building the, the, the habitat that these... Well, what about in. these artificial reefs where they sink a ship or, you know, whatever? So, you know, there's been some, some, some good attempts to try and restore the habitat that's being lost by uh, returning various, or I say returning, introducing various mm. um, man-made uh, structures to the bottom of the ocean in order to produce a three-dimensional structure that might take the place of a reef in providing this habitat. And, you know, I think, although many of those attempts are sort of well-intended, there's, you know, and, and in fact, the danger is that sometimes we substitute an artificial reef for a natural one, and right. we tend to compensate for the loss of one by introducing the other. Right. So for example, if a, let's say an engineering company wants to do something to the seafloor that might uh, damage the reef, typically they will offer an artificial reef or as a, as a sort of a, a substitute for, the, yeah. for, for what was lost. And that's really a very poor substitute. Yeah, you get some three-dimensional structure, but there's you know none of the attendant biodiversity uh, necessarily comes with it and often artificial reefs although they do tend to act as kind of what we might call fish aggregating structures you know lots of fish will will see this reef and will sort of uh, be attracted to it and so if you go diving on this reef you may see lots of fish and, and have the impression that there's a tremendous marine life there it's not clear if perhaps those fish are being sort of sucked off the adjacent reefs to these more dramatic artificial structures, and so it's not mm. it's not clear that what what the true benefits in the long term of, of, of what artificial reefs are. I, I don't I not say that they're all bad, but I do worry that we're in a mindset at the moment that we we think we can we can substitute one for the other, particularly when it comes to habitat destruction. And yeah, it, it reminds me of the logging, logging companies that say, oh, we replant. You know, they go in and cut down an old growth forest and they replant with fast growing pines or something and, and act like that's the same thing. Right, right. Yes. It's particularly acute. The problem here is that, you know, obviously corals are dying for a reason. We're changing their environment so quickly and so dramatically by polluting them with nutrients, by overfishing them, by climate change, by diseases that are being introduced to the poor water quality that you know this assumption that if we create a habitat eventually corals will recruit to that habitat and, and will colonize it and it'll become like a reef that's a reasonable assumption but obviously it would take decades or you know possibly even centuries and it's not at all clear that with the changed conditions that we've caused on these reefs that have caused all these corals to be depleted to begin with that that process will necessarily happen anyway yeah so unlike say a deforestation scenario where you know, perhaps you could argue that given decades or hundreds of years eventually those little pines will eventually grow into a mature forest you might believe that in the terrestrial 
scenario, but in, on, in the yeah. marine environment, we've changed everything, and even the corals that we have are not doing well. So to expect new corals to sort of recruit and be happy and, right. and form these wonderful reefs is maybe a bridge too far. Well, it's the equivalent of having washed away the topsoil when you logged the forest and, yeah. and then expect it to be a mature, you know, it's a, it's a monochrome forest. You're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's, that's a, a good, yeah. good analogy. Yeah. yeah, although, as you say, three times stronger because there's so many more different types of life. Yeah, I mean, by some measures, we're actually losing tropical coral reefs four times more quickly than we're losing tropical rainforests. And so I remember as a kid in the 80s when this sort of deforestation logging uh, images first started coming to us in, in you know, Europe and the US, being really affected by that with something we can really see, you know, mm. see these images from taken from an aircraft or a helicopter or even from space yeah. more recently. We don't have those kinds of images for coral reefs. You know, it's very much out of sight, out of mind. These deep water ecosystems that really are sort of mysterious in the public's eye and, and hard to kind of grasp. We don't have good ways of imaging them. We don't have good ways of really conveying to the public. And, and it's hard, I think, for us to get a grasp of what's being lost. Yeah. I just want to, uh, to, to say that the reason Andrew is talking much more than Riva is that Andrew's time, Andrew's got a meeting coming up and Riva and I are going to pick up a little later, so yeah. I don't want people to think we're mansplaining no. <laughs> <laughs> or ignoring you or anything. Um, the, uh, you mentioned deep water structures. Are there coral in deep water or are they all in the, the top 30 feet or so? There are, so it depends what you mean by deep. So deep, the deep water ecosystems, deep water coral ecosystems that occur where literally there's almost no light whatsoever, really? are very different ecosystems yeah. from the tropical coral reef ecosystems that oh. you see on TV in National Geographic. Right, and, right. Uh, but these deep water ecosystems are still uh, existent. For example, there are deep reefs off the coast of, the, of Scotland and Norway. Uh, there are some deep reefs off the coast of North Carolina in the U.S. So um, are they still photosyn... They are not. No, they're not. They, they don't depend on sunlight, obviously, because uh, there's very little sunlight. Right. But they still do form meters thick and sometimes hundreds of meters long structures that are sort of similar to a reef ecosystem. The difference is that the... the the biodiversity tends to be lower. There's usually only one or perhaps two or a handful of coral species that are actually able to survive under these conditions and able to grow quickly enough to build a reef. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of, um, I mean, they're important ecosystems, but they're sort of an, an anomaly. And usually right. if, you, if you use the term coral reef, most people, uh, most people accept that you're really referring to the light-dependent, shallow, and usually tropical reef ecosystems. Right. Fish can see colors, I guess, right? Uh, yes, they can. They can also see lots of other uh, spectral that we can't see, UV patterns and, and so oh. on. Yeah, it's interesting how in so much research um, we sort of attribute our own sensory limitations to the animal being studied. You know, I remember reading something about uh, I don't remember what it was now, but it was something about dogs not not recognizing their owners if the owner changed changed the shirt or so, some silliness like that that didn't incorporate the fact that dogs' sense of smell is uh, you know primary mm -hmm. over their sense of sight. Uh, yeah, it really makes you wonder. In fact, some of the best eyes in the animal kingdom are on tropical coral reefs. There are things called uh, sort of snapping shrimp. They're mantis shrimp. Mantis, oh. mantis shrimp. And they have the eye at the end of a, an appendage? Is that they, yeah, they are at the end of an appendage, but they have the most amazing um, compound eyes that can see into all kinds of different spectra that we, that we don't see. And, you know, I think they have something like 14 different color receptors, mm -hmm. whereas we have only three. Really? Oh, so they're, yeah. They, they're, wow. they're much more sensitive 
even in our own visual spectrum, and then they obviously yeah. see into UV also. Yeah, and and you know these stomatopods have this. Um, they also have, in addition, an amazing sort of pay, prey capture uh, mechanism that is lightning fast, mm. and so they they not only can spot prey very quickly, but they can grab it very quickly as well. So it's all presumably a a prey capture package. <laughs> <laughs> a prey capture package. Uh, so how did you get into the ocean? So, I mean, how, how did it go from, you know, slimy stuff in your backyard to yeah, Miami, well, Florida? I guess I underplayed the, the, the angle about the marine realm. You know, I guess I've always been fascinated by the sea. I love the ocean. Right. But it's not, you know, it wasn't as if, I've struggled with this for a while because a lot of people ask me this, members of my family in particular. You know, what is it about corals? And, and I suppose for me, I was fascinated in the ocean. As I said before, there are so many more different kinds of life in the ocean. And for me, the ocean is inherently mysterious mm. and dramatic and has this element of unknown, alien, you know, yeah. in, in, a, in an exciting way, certainly for a young kid. Did you read this? Sorry to interrupt you. Did you read this thing just recently? Uh, it was about how, where water came from initially. And the idea, the, the theory that was introduced, I think this may have been in Nature last week, that the the early, I don't know if it couldn't have been planets, because the idea, yeah, it was the the early, first when the planet and the sun and everything was formed, uh, it was passing through these big clouds of ice crystals, and those came onto the planet and, and eventually became water. And the, 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 the sort of hook at, uh, in the article was that water is older than the Earth and the sun huh. because it was already out there. Yeah. And no one knows how old it is, but yeah. it's older than everything else. Yeah. Oh, I love that. No, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. But it reminds me of um, there's this gigantic meteorite that sits in the basement of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Mm -hmm. And that meteorite, which obviously came from outer space, is older than anything on our planet. And it's right. just, it's just <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> in New York. Sitting there in right. New York, you can touch it. It's made yeah. of solid iron. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, age becomes such an abstraction when you get into hundreds of billions of years or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, Darwin was a geologist. That's right. Originally. Yeah. Actually, originally he was a doctor. A a doc and a priest. <laughs> he was studying to be a priest, too. That, I think he's disappointed the priest side of the family. Yeah. yeah. Actually, since you brought him up. You know, Darwin, who's obviously famous for many other things, his very first ever monograph is on coral reefs. Oh, really? And he solved, this is something I teach in my classes every year, he solved what was one of the most um, uh, controversial questions of the day in 19th century sort of geological science, which was the, the, um, the paradox of how do uh, coral reef atolls form in the middle of the Pacific. The Pacific is a deep ocean basin mm. and these atolls which are made by the action of these tiny little coral polyps or polypifers as they right. were called back then appear to be built from the bottom of the ocean thousands of meters deep and yet they knew that these organisms were light dependent. How did these organisms get their start at yeah. the bottom of the ocean where there's right. no light and build these amazing spires, volcanic, I'm oh, sorry I've just given, this, given the game away. How do they build these gigantic spires that reach thousands of meters up and actually break the surface? Right. And Darwin was the one who suggested that they had, in fact, colonized volcanoes, originally volcanoes that had that had forced their way through, as a result of volcanic action, through the Earth's, through the through the surface of the ocean, 
coral polyps had colonized the surface of these volcanoes, <laughs> and then the yeah. volcano had sank ben beneath uh, the crust of the earth under right. its own weight, and the corals had just kept growing. As the volcano slowly sank over hundreds, thousands of years, right. even millions of years, the corals had slowly kept pace with that, with that rate yeah. of sinking. And in fact, we now know that that's exactly how these things were formed. But he wrote a book, which is in fact right here behind you, which was published in, I want to say, 1846, and it's uh -huh. his first ever book. The Structure and Distribution of Coral Reefs. Charlie D. Chucky e. D. Yeah. So he, he, he occupies a, a special place in the pantheon of coral reef scientists. Yeah, well, it's, it's great. You know, if he weren't such a generalist, he would have never come up with this stuff because the geology was what gave him those time frames to think in, That's which right. allowed him to theorize something like that. Whereas other people would have been looking at you know a couple thousand years maximum and discounted it immediately. Yeah. It's really interesting since you brought it up because he was trained as a geologist in the you know the early 1800s. The pr the prime you know, mode of geological thinking back then uh, was this mode called catastrophism, that the mm. earth was made in a very short period of time, you know, according to one famous, uh, uh, you know, a religious figure, 4004 BC was the, was the age of the creation of the earth. So, and under the principles of catastrophism, all of the earth's geological structures had been made through the, you know, one catastrophe or another. The great flood had created this and right. such an event had created that. And at about the time that, that Darwin was being trained, a guy named uh, Sir Charles Lyell, Lyell wrote a right. principle with principles yeah. of uniformitarianism, which was yeah. principles of geology, sorry, which in which he, he expressed this theory of uniformitarianism, which is that the same uh, structures that you see on Earth can also be explained through the action of very slow, mo slow moving processes occupying long, long periods of geological time. And that was starting to become popular at the time that Darwin was being trained, and he went out to sort of, you know, understand the world through that lens. So it's really interesting that he then came up with a biological theory, right. essentially, uh, following the same sort of logic that you can explain the diversity of forms of life on Earth through the action of slowly operating processes that accumulate change over a long, long period of time versus the other prevailing paradigm, which was the sort of the catastrophism mode in which, well, you know, species are created by a that's, creator. That's really interesting because one of the arguments that um, my wife and I made in Sex at Dawn and that I'm making in the book I'm working on now is that there is a, a sort of catastrophic assumption in embedded in um, the theory of natural selection which oversimplifies the process. Both Darwin and um, Alfred Russell Wallace were reading the same book when they came up with the, the theory of natural selection. You're shaking your head. Do you know what it was? Extra points. No, <laughs> uh, Malthus. Thomas Malthus, right. Yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, so both of them were reading about this, which turned out to be completely dis discredited, this understanding that uh, you know, uh, population would always outstrip food supply, and therefore, you know, there was always this this great struggle for survival at the heart of natural selection. So it's interesting. I didn't know about this connection to to the geology as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. and it, it, it's it, as I said, it, it's uh, there's a great book uh, about this called Reef Madness by a guy named David Dobbs, who who mm. outlines this great debate between the great minds of the day, great geological reef, minds of the day. Reef, reef Madness. madness. Yeah, <laughs> not to be confused. Great reef or Madness. But, but yeah, no, Reef Madness um, yeah, expre you know, just describes this amazing debate between esteemed 19th century biologists, which got very personal. Yeah, um, quite easy. And Darwin was not one for... Uh, 
controversy or you know uh, what's what's the word um, uh, polemics dip, dip, yeah, yeah debate and so he he kind of bided his time and just as with natural selection it was other people who really took yeah. up championing his well, he was his stressed theories. out enough as it was the poor guy he had explosive farts and you know do you know that no. he did he complained of the <laughs> he had explosive farts and diarrhea and he'd have like uncontrolled crying fits no wonder he, he was a recluse yeah he was a mess so yeah uh, charles oh, darwin Ale alexander agassi who was the, the meaning of coral oh interesting yeah another good never heard another of good that. book yeah, great oh oliver sacks uh gave it a beautiful review here mm -hmm. poor oliver sacks yeah, yeah, right. Him. Yeah, it was great. Um, okay, wait a minute. Where I, I feel like there were there were several tangents that I just blew blew off there. Do you remember where we were going? Did you ever explain how you got into the ocean? Did we? I, you know, this is a mystery to me. It's a mystery. You know, it, 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 as I said, I've always been. I was telling you about how I was attracted to the mystery and right. the, 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 oh, sort of the and alienness. That's when we it. started talking about how old water yeah, was. Yeah, right. And that's, that's right. That's right. It's okay, your fault. It's my yeah. fault. Always my um, fault. So no, it, it, you know, it's not very scientific, but but I'm one of those people who was just you know fascinated by the possibilities, and to me the romance of the ocean is as important right. as anything in explaining why, yeah. you know, what, what what remains to be discovered, what's down there. You know, this is why I'm a sucker for movies like The Abyss, where you mm. discover alien civilizations living at the bottom of the ocean. So, yeah. you know, my, my, my equivalent of that is, you know, what, what species are down there that we know nothing about, what great mysteries remain to be solved? And, you know, in the meantime, there's plenty of mysteries to be solved right right here on the surface, you know, whether it's in coral reefs or anywhere else. But, but that was the hook that got me. Right. You mentioned all the, the biodiversity, which is so much greater uh, in these reefs than it is in, in terrestrial environments. One of the arguments that's often made for saving the rainforest is the, um, that s there's so much um, pharmaceutical potential there. Are drugs developed from marine animals? So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So um, yeah, we often use uh, biodiversity as a, a proxy for pharmacological potential. And you know, in the 1980s and 1990s, bioprospecting was a big deal on land, and, mm -hmm. and it caused some governments, you know, particularly Brazil, to take uh, great steps to prevent this, or at least to prevent biopiracy. You know, right. wealthier countries coming in and stealing their natural resources for for the chemicals that these things made. Funnily enough, you know, although drugs have been made from coral reefs, there's been a number of like antistatins that were made from Gorgonian corals and various other things, the potential still far exceeds the realized amount. And, you know, for the amount of money it costs to make every new drug, the, the amount of investment required is huge. For me, though, there's a parallel argument to be made, which I'm sure is being made, which is that we now live in a genomic era where every single organism's and every single species genome is a mine, a mine of information. You know, just mm -hmm. a, it, the warehouse of biodiversity at this at, at this point is no longer so much chemical diversity because the way that we used to bioprospect is we would take you know we take an organism, a new organism, we'd grind it up and make some sort of extract, and then we would throw that extract on a tumor in a laboratory environment and see if you know if it made any difference. So it was very very sort of I won't say bucket chemistry, but it was it was kind of very much from the point of view of what are the effects. Right now we can take you know just a small tiny biopsy from an individual organism, sequence that genomic uh, DNA, get the entire sequence of, of genes in that organism, and we're doing this with many organisms, and of course we're finding lots and lots of novel genes whose function we have no idea what, 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 what it is. And so 
if you sort of think about all of these different species as being repositories of this genetic information that's unique, the genetic information in, in that species has been acted on by millions of years of natural selection. It's come up with an organism that is, you know, that has solved life's problems such as it experiences and it's a finely tuned organism. So we've got these millions of species that have all come up with different ways to survive and make a living on this planet. Each one of them is a book and inside that book is all this information. So we have sort of this great library of Alexandria full of all mm. these books with all of this information just waiting for us to read. And the problem is, is we're in the process of burning this library and burning all the books with it. So all that information is being lost. So yes, there are pharmacological products that are being made from corals uh, and coral reef related organisms. But for me, the, the, the real, uh, value to these organisms is all the genetic information which encodes of course all of these chemicals and proteins and products that we might use um, so so yeah uh, I guess I get back to where I started from that the potential yeah. is there and yeah. it's it, it, the question the challenge for people like Reva and I is how, how do we help us the, maintain that biodiversity how, what steps can we take to ensure we don't lose that biodiversity forever so that those books don't get burned I have more questions for you, but that was so well stated that I think we'll just wrap it up there. And I saw you eat your lunch in about 30 seconds, so thank you for sacrificing your lunch hour for us. You're welcome. And, it was a uh, real pleasure. Sharing your knowledge. That was, that was wonderful. You and I will pick up uh, somewhere in a cafe. Sure okay. Thing. All right. We'll take a break. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as Thank much you. as I did. Awesome. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com if you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at Carsey Blanton. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say 
you're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say It's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground